God can forgive guilt, mm -hmm. but sin unleashes a Pandora's box of horrible consequences, and we're not safe from all of those. That's you know, true. the Psalms are the most important book in the Old Testament for us. They're the prayer of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the apostles. Mm -hmm. I, I used to teach Bible, sixth grade, Old Testament. So one kid says, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> That's supposed to be concubines. I think everyone gets that. I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry, a Catholic graduate school reuniting theology, prayer, and sanctity. They offer in-person and online master's degrees in theology and Catholic philosophy, as well as certificate programs ranging from catechetical leadership to Catholic bioethics. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeff Cavins. Welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. Great to get together with you once again, where we are discussing all of salvation history. And today we're going to be looking at the royal kingdom, and that is the purple period, the purple period in the Bible timeline. Really, purple stands for royalty, and that's what we're going to be uh, taking a look at. Last time we were together, we were looking at the green period, which is the conquest in Judges. And if you remember that during that period, Israel kind of well, they kind of lost their structure. They lost uh, leadership, weren't sure where they were going after Joshua died. And uh, every man did what was right in his own eyes and things just kind of came un unglued, unraveled. And isn't that what happens when we don't have leadership? What we're going to see in today's period is we're gonna see them really cry out to God that we need leadership. Specifically, they're gonna ask for a king. It's good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. And your latest work with Ascension is? What We Believe, The Beauty of the Catholic Faith, filmed in Rome with Dr. Andrew Swafford and his lovely wife, Sarah. Sure. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, I've been looking forward to talking to you about the, the royal kingdom. I know you've been teaching scripture and the faith for years and the church fathers, and we're going to bring all that together now to talk about uh, the royal kingdom, the purple, the purple period, because there's a big shift that takes place. And a lot of people, they don't know, well, how did we even end up with these kings, you know? And as I said at the opening of the show, there was a lack of leadership, and they went to Samuel, and they said, hey, uh, and it's not a new idea, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king like all the other nations, which means that they want a king like all of the surrounding nations. And Samuel wasn't real thrilled about that was <laughs> at first. You know, the, the, the problem with God's people all throughout history and today, right now, is wanting to imitate pagan culture. Yep. That, that's the problem. We want to be like everybody else. And that doesn't work when you're God's peculiar people, you know, this mm -hmm. special possession, dearer to him than any nation on the earth. And you're, you're supposed to reflect him and mm -hmm. his glory and his holiness and not your neighbor's way yeah. of life and yeah. values. Well, I, th I kind of wonder if they thought, if they had thought about it for a moment after they asked for a king, would Deuteronomy 17 come to mind? And back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses said, in the future, you're going to ask for a king. And let me tell you, there's three things a king should not have much of. He should not have many chariots and horses. He should not have uh, many wives. And he should not have much gold. And, you know, typically these are the things that are involved in uh, making agreements with foreign nations. And that's really what God is saying. You're going to ask for a king in the future, but this king should not be in all of these foreign alliances. And it really hints at... God really wants to be your king. And I think that's what kind of drove Samuel a little crazy there, is that, no, I don't want to be like all the other nations. It's a lack of trust. You know, mm -hmm. it's a lack of trust in, in God's ability to unify his people and protect them, because that's what they wanted. They wanted a king mm -hmm. to protect them from the Philistines. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and the good thing about all this is it tells us a little bit about what a king should be. Mm -hmm. Some of their desires are legit. They want to be protected, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be provided for. Mm -hmm. And... Um, a king, a shepherd. You know, a shepherd protects the sheep. A shepherd feeds the sheep or leads the sheep to the pasture. So at least this is giving us an idea of later on the king sure. of kings. And that's kind of the point of the, of the Old Testament, really. Is, is It doesn't work out so well, though. Um, 
And those three things, we want to keep track of those in our conversation. Yeah, yeah. We have, you know, not many chariots and horses, not many wives and not many golds because gold, because that kind of all falls apart as we get towards the third king. Now, the three kings are the first one, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. The second is David. And then the third is is Solomon. And each one reigns roughly for 40, for 40 years. But I think it's interesting how they got the first king, Saul. He's from Benjamin. And it's it was no secret that Judah and and uh, and uh, the northern tribes, Judah and the northern tribes, are not doing so well in their relationship. Right in the middle is Benjamin, and Benjamin can act like a, a buffer, and that's where Saul comes from, and he's really quite. A good guy to start with. I think he gets bad press oftentimes. You know, I like about Saul at the beginning is when he wins the kind of the lottery, you know, and God shows his will through lots that are cast, you know, mm -hmm. some people object. And when he finally solidifies his reign, people say, kill those guys. And he says, no, 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 we're not going to, none of that. And, and that he shows restraint. At that moment, he shows some humility and some restraint, mm -hmm. which unfortunately doesn't last very long. No, no, it doesn't. So, so Saul is the first king. He's from Benjamin, separates Judah and Ephraim. And he, his role largely is a uniter. He unites the kingdom. The, the tribes were, were really scattered. Uh, there wasn't a cohesiveness. There certainly wasn't this uh, spiritual unity at that point. He does unite it. We got to give him credit for that. He, he does unite the, 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 the nation. But then he's disobedient. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. And as a result of being disobedient, the kingdom is, I like the, the Hebrew word, it's ripped from him. Yeah. It's taken from him. And God says that it's going to go to someone after God's own heart. And you remember the, the response that Saul had once he was caught. Once, once you know, uh, the prophet said to him, you know, you're, you're disobedient. He has this attitude of like, all right, so don't put it in the paper. Let's just move on. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I, I think is striking? He blames the people. Yep. It's all about the spoils of battle. It's all supposed to be a sacrifice to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, when he's caught keeping the best and not destroying it, as was the command, um, he says, oh, we were, we were just going to offer that to the Lord and sacrifice. Sure. So he's rationalizing. It kind of shows you the psychology of sin. And I think if we're mm -hmm. honest, we can kind of ca catch ourselves in this. You know, He's rationalizing. And then he shifts the blame, just like Adam does in the garden. He does. You know? Like Eve made me do it. it. The people put me up to it. I didn't want to upset the people. They wanted mm -hmm. to keep this booty and sacrifice mm -hmm. it. You know, so it, Abraham it, does it too. <laughs> This is great. Not that they do it. They don't do it today. In, yeah, no one does that. In politics or anything else. No, no, no. So we can learn from those old stories, <laughs> that's right. right? Right. Yeah, so that's an interesting point is that he blames it on the people. Now, that, there's a practical point there that people can learn from, particularly in church leadership or, or just your job if you're a CEO, and that is that the buck stops with you. Stop yep. blaming people. Yes. Stop blaming people. And that can be even in the home with a father, you yes. know, a mother. Stop blaming people. Own it. Own it. And that seems to be what David did because the kingdom was ripped from Saul and it was given to this young upstart from Bethlehem. A nobody. Really a nobody, even within the family, just the kid, yeah. you know. Give, t talk to me a little bit of how that took place and how David ended up rising to such prominence. And then we'll, we'll get into, you know, the line of David and what that means. I, I want to make a point that I think is lost to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Sheep, to us, especially in stuffed animals, are cuddly and soft and sweet. And so being a shepherd, we think it's kind of romantic. But being a shepherd in ancient Israel was the bottom of the barrel. That was like lowest class. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, you, you basically you are kind of like a tax collector. Yeah. And, and so it, it's it, total lack of prestige. And he's the youngest the smallest, all the brothers are handsome and you know tall. Saul was tall, you know. He was. He was but the tallest. He was the tallest, right? So, so t Saul looked the part, and uh, even though David's handsome, he didn't look the part because he was slight, and his brothers didn't take him seriously. 
But, uh, you know, when the Lord sends Samuel, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and I'm going to show you the sons of this guy, and you're going to anoint one. Mm-hmm. Samuel is looking with human eyes, and he, mm-hmm. he thinks the oldest is Elite. the right one. And yeah. then he says the next one. And finally, you know, the least likely to succeed, the, the little runt, is the one that the Lord designates. And I think it's very interesting to see the anointing. Mm-hmm. So he's anointed, and Samuel takes out a horn of oil. And the, the oil's in a horn because the horn is a symbol of a bull. It's not just a practical carrying case. It means something. And a bull's horn means power and strength. Mm-hmm. And so the oil that's taken is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And he pours that oil on David's head. And, and the text says that the Spirit rushes upon David from that moment. And right after that, David goes into battle. Yes. And he, and he goes in faith. He goes as the runt who's a stripling. Saul calls him, who's that stripling out there, you know? He's, he goes into battle. He can't wear armor. <laughs> you know, he just takes his sling. Mm-hmm. And he's confident in the Lord of hosts. Not in himself, not in the armor, but in right. the Lord of hosts. So you see this guy who has to win your heart. Yeah. And you see why he's after God's own heart. Because he's courageous. In the power, and this is all now the anointing of the power of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. The anointing of the power of the Spirit leads to faith, confidence, trust, and it makes you a lion. It makes you strong. One of the gifts of the Spirit is fortitude. David shows it, goes into battle, and slays the Philistine, turns the tide, the tide, the tide of the battle. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just an amazing uh, image of what the anointing of kingship is supposed to do um, and what it accomplishes. I love that. I love the. Um, the interplay between Eliab, the oldest, yeah. and David. Uh, Eliab was passed over. Nobody likes to be passed over, no. especially if you're good looking, the strongest, the, the oldest. oldest. right? And you're passed over yeah. for, as you said, the runt yeah. <laughs> of the litter, you know. And so when the war is taking place in 1 Samuel 6, you know, in 1 Samuel 17, right before that is this private anointing. And so David is anointed privately, but Eliab's aware of this. He's aware of it. And... So when David comes up to observe the war and bring some, you know, provisions for the family, Eliab's like, what are you doing here? I know your heart. I know you. And you're, you're here to show off, you know. And that's interesting because Eliab is basically saying, I know your heart. And what David could say is, no, but God does know my heart. God knows my heart. Yeah. And by the way, bud that's why I was anointed. <laughs> and in seven and a half years, he's going to be anointed in the South. You know, I think just the, to go into the New Testament for just a minute, when Jesus says, don't judge, he's basically saying, not saying, don't judge people's behavior. Mm-hmm. He's saying, don't think you know people's heart. And I think that's, that's very important looking at this. You know, mm-hmm. don't make that mistake of going out and judging people's heart. Yeah. Only God sees the heart and knows the heart. He slays Goliath. And everything changes at that point. And... Uh, the song was sung by the women, which guys don't like to hear songs sung about other guys. You know? <laughs> As a David, or yeah. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And there we go. Saul enters into envy. Yep. And it depresses him. Yeah. And oddly enough, music lifts him up. And guess who is going to play the music? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's David with his harp. Yeah. So we've got this, this, uh, this dynamic between them where Saul is so eaten with envy at the point, at right. this point. And, and, you know, envy, by the way, is the envy is when it's different than jealousy. Jealousy is I want what you have. Envy is I don't want you to have, you know, right. what you have. That makes me sick when you right. are blessed. That's right. What a deadly sin. Deadly, deadly. So he he is envious of David, and Saul ends up dying at the hands of the Philistines, and he's hung over the walls of Bethshan, and David now is accepted by the entire nation. This kid rises, and he becomes the second king of Israel, really the greatest king they've ever had, the, the gold standard. The gold standard. You know, if, if you will. So I, I, I appreciate, you know, when people are asked, who do you most, you know, who do you like most in the Old Testament? David is always up there, yeah. you know, and I don't know if it's because of the story of Goliath or what, what it is. Well, you know, you have to, if you're a Christian, to use the son of David. So David is a type of Christ in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. But even, even just looking at the text and taking the Old Testament at face value for itself, mm-hmm. in its own, then I don't think you can 
you read the story of David and not be moved by, sure. by him. I mean, all his ups and downs, all throughout it all, even yeah. in his tragic flaws. And uh, you, you see humility even in his flaws. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the horrible flaw, uh, first foremost, of not uh, of being too much like the world's kings and loving luxury. Mm -hmm. And when his guys are out in battle, instead of being out in battle, he's basking on the roof. Why isn't he in battle with his men like right. he used to be when he was young, you know? And so he sees a woman there and she looks, he already has a nice harem, but no, he wants that one. It happens to be the wife of one of his commanders. Uriah. The, the story of, of Bathsheba and Uriah and David's treachery, it's really despicable. Sure. And so you see, this is one of the things about the old covenant is you see, so much good in so many of those who try to follow God, but you see these tragic flaws yeah. where people fall, even the greatest heroes, and, and, and fall mortally. We would say, certainly, this double mortal sin here. Mm -hmm. he, he sleeps with Bathsheba, his, 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 his loyal officer's wife, and then because he can't bribe his loyal officer to go home and, try and sleep with his wife so it can be covered up, um, he he killed. He has him killed. I mean, it's, pretty it's amazing. It's, it's it's tragic. Before we get even further into that, let me just I want to state one thing, and that is this: that in this purple period of the royal kingdom, there are two major scriptures that you got to get a hold of. It's worthy of marking in your Bible. The first one we covered, which is First Samuel eight. We want a king. We want a king. The second is is Second Samuel seven, hmm. where, where David wants to build God a permanent home. He wants to build God a permanent home because up to this point, there's been a tabernacle. And of course, David in 2 Samuel 6 brings the Ark of the Covenant in. He's all excited. He's dancing. If you've ever seen that movie by David by Richard Gere, you see him dancing and it's very, very powerful. Uh, scene. But in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, David says to God, look, I'm going to build you a permanent house. And I love God's language. He says, did I tell you I wasn't doing well <laughs> in the house? Yeah. Did I tell you that? Yeah. I'm okay. I'm all right. But he said, no, I'm going to make your name great, David. I'm going to make your name great, which is a fulfillment of the three promises to Abraham in, in Genesis 12. I'm gonna give you land, I'm gonna make your name great, and make a name of, of you, and it's gonna be worldwide blessing. And so now we see in 2 Samuel 7, a direct connection to the promise to Abram, but God says, you're not gonna build it. Your son Solomon is going to build it. Now, we, we talked about Saul and how he dealt with sin. How does David deal with the sin? You mentioned Uriah being killed, Bathsheba now becomes the wife of, of David, but there's consequences Absolutely. to that. And what's David's heart? How different is David than Saul, who basically was concerned with the headlines on the paper? Exactly. David really is grieved. He, he gets caught. Nathan, the famous confrontation where Nathan tells a story mm -hmm. about a man. Uh, let me tell you a parable. This is the closest thing we have to the parables of Jesus, by the way, in the Old Testament. Let me tell you a story. There's a man who has a whole lot of sheep. And there's a little man, with, very poor, and he has this one ewe that he sleeps with every night, you know, and mm -hmm. loves. And the man who has many sheep has a guest who comes, and instead of taking one of his own, he goes and takes that one sheep and butchers it of, the, of his neighbor and serves it to his guest. What do you think about that? That man ought to die. And, and then Nathan said, that man is you. What a powerful, oh my gosh, David's nailed. So he repents, he repents. He, he recognizes his sin and he repents in fasting and, and sackcloth and ashes, you know. And um, the, the baby that is conceived dies, which is one of the consequences yeah. to his sin. Mm -hmm. um, but what I love is when his son rebels against him later, his son Absalom, which is another consequence of David's sin. And I think it's very important for people to understand, God can forgive guilt, mm -hmm. but sin unleashes a Pandora's box. It opens up a Pandora's box of horrible consequences. And we're not safe from all of those. That's you know? true. That's right. And, and so uh, that, the temporal punishment due to sin are the consequences of our own sin, the damage it does to us, to other people. Yeah. So anyway, you know, one, one of the things we see is Absalom 
pursuing David and David leaving Jerusalem and weeping. And as he goes up the Mount of Olives, he has a descendant of Saul or a relative of Saul throwing things at him and cursing him. And one of his men wants to kill Shimei, this guy who's cursing David. David says, no, maybe the Lord is telling him to berate me. He, he accepts, he weeps on the mm -hmm. Mount of Olives leaving. He accepts his punishment as the consequences of his sin, which I think is, is amazing. And that's one of the things that's beautiful about David. The, uh, the response of, uh, of uh, David is always with me prior, before I go to confession. Yeah. Uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 50, yeah. It's Psalm 51 is absolutely beautiful where, you know, uh, ba David basically says, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you, O Lord. Yep. And, and uh, created me. A clean heart. Oh, God, don't take the spirit from me. This is very different than Saul. Right. You know, it's yeah. very different than Saul. And so I take some uh, comfort in David, you know, that, you know, we can all identify with sin in our life, you know, and yet God is merciful. His, his, his merciful covenant faithfulness, chesed in Hebrew, you know, this, yes. this beautiful covenant faithfulness. And that's the good news. And David represents that, that to us. Let's, let's talk real briefly about David as a father because we know he was a great king. Yeah. He's the gold standard. Uh, not so much yeah. as a dad, is he? Not so much as a dad. And I'm, I'm going to make one point, and that is, you know, when you get into having many wives, <laughs> Uh, when you get into polygamy, which it, that was something that the Israelite kings imitated from their neighbors, mm -hmm. you know? And it, when you do that, it's pretty hard to be a good dad. You know, you have a, sure. a lot of kids from different women. It's hard to be a good dad. And David didn't do a good job with it. And, and the one way, one place where we can really see it clearly, where it would have been easy for him to deal with it, was when one, his older son, Ammon, mm -hmm. raped his half-sister. Yeah, and it was brought to David's attention, and David was angry. But David didn't punish uh, Amnon. And so, mm -hmm. who was the brother that, that who's you know the full brother to this to this girl? It was Absalom. Mm -hmm. So he sows a seed of Absalom's rebellion in his failure to protect Absalom's full sister. Yeah, you know it's it's amazing. So that I think a lot of times. Men don't take action. Leaders don't take action. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we, whether they be clergy or they be dads, we don't take action many times when we need to take action against yeah. sin and, and do the proper discipline. And the consequences are horrible. And here's, here's a good example of it. I want to spend just a, a moment on this uh, idea of the son of David. The, I, I mentioned to you that 1 Samuel chapter 8, we want a king, is very critical in this period. 2 Samuel 7, uh, very critical. David wants to build God a temple. And God says, no, I will build you a house. And there in that chapter in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and says that someone from your family will be on the throne now forever. And our next lesson is gonna be about the divided kingdom. We're gonna see everything break loose in the North during that period. But, but for this period right now, God is saying to David, someone from your family will be on the throne forever and ever and ever. And so eventually that's fulfilled in Jesus. And we've got this title, the son of David, the son of David. Talk to me a little bit about that name and how that relates to Jesus, the son of David. The son of David is the one who is on the throne, who, who fulfills mm -hmm. that prophecy. And all so, the way down. All the way down the line, you know, so we're not gonna get into the exile and, and the problems that happened, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there, but, we, but we, we just need to point out that the son of David is, is a very important figure. David has a dynasty, and so it's, the promise is never forgotten. Promise made to God, made by God through Nathan. Mm -hmm. And so when there were difficult times, there was always a longing and an expectation and a prophetic promise of a son of David uh, who would be faithful, mm -hmm. who would make things right. And you know, we have a few that, that are kind of good in the, the history of, of the kings, you know, but ultimately we know that that son of David that was really spoken about in the oracle of Nathan, that's gonna be Jesus. 
But then we move to the third king, Solomon. And Solomon is the son of David. And one of the questions that comes up, and I, I, I peeked and I looked at some of the questions that were coming in, and one of them was, why, why was Solomon chosen? Mm -hmm. Because he clearly is not, you mentioned it earlier, Abnon, he's not the firstborn. When the Lord gives someone a name, mm -hmm. that always indicates a special destiny. You know, yeah. I mean, we don't have a record of all the children of David getting spe special names, you know, God naming them. But here, this mm -hmm. guy has a special name, and his name means something. Yeah. And, um, and it means, and we're going to find out that under the kingship, it really, we have an expansion. Now we have an international sort of reality here. Mm -hmm. um, and the temple is made with a court of the Gentiles. Gentiles are welcome. Uh, it includes Gentiles because it's now, you know, under Solomon, it, it reaches its greatest extent, even greater than David's extent. But it's peaceful. There's not a lot of war. Um, and, and I think that's pretty important. Um, the other thing I just want to point out is that David shall be his son. Uh, he will be my son. Um, but that's said of David, but it's said of Solomon. He'll be my son. The king has mm -hmm. a... It, you don't call everybody a son of God in the Old Testament. Not, you know, every Israelite doesn't call God Father. We're going to find out that that's very different, you know, than mm -hmm. what happens in the New Testament, right? Um, where Jesus it teaches us to call God our Father. In the Old Testament, you don't call God Father. But God calls the king, the Davidic king, his son. So there's a special yeah. relationship between the idea of son of David and a son of God. And, it's, of course, it's not... You know, Jesus is much more than than the Son of God according that David is, right? But still, this idea that God has this special familiarity, intimacy with the King is very important. Uh, and the last thing I just want to say is part of this in the in the Book of Kings, mm -hmm. you see that Bathsheba is the highly favored wife. She is not a queen, you know. In the harem, there's not one who's a queen. Maybe in per maybe in Persia there was, you know, with the Queen Esther story, but not here. But Bathsheba has a promise from David that her son. Now she had other sons, so mm -hmm. among her sons, this is the favored one of of God, but she's the favored one of David. And I think it, it kind of tells you that the, the mother, in, in the kingdom of Judah, the mother of the king is a very important figure. And right. the king is chosen not by because he's the firstborn son of, of, you know, of the king, but it, it's, it's the favored one of God who happens to be the, the son of the favored one mm -hmm. of the king and therefore of God. So, you know, what does is, what is the angel Gabriel say? You know, hail, O highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mm -hmm. Mary is chosen. And that has, that's bound up with, with Jesus' choice, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just like, you know, that he's a son of David according to Joseph's paternal line. You know, th this, is, this is all kind of part of the story. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, something that's very important in the relationship between Bathsheba and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Absolutely. That the mother of the king is the queen mother, the, the Gevera in Hebrew. You know, she is the queen mother. That's not something we made up as Catholics. That's uh -huh. not a private devotion of someone's nope. that we just thought, well, that, that sounds good. Let's... Mint a metal for it, you know? No. That, this goes way back into yep. history that the mother of the king was an intercessor, an advocate. That's right. For the people. And, and that is an important thing to remember. And so when we come to the New Testament, we right. see that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the queen mother. Absolutely. She's an advocate. And I think it's important to understand that Elizabeth schooled in the Old Testament, this was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. when, when it was revealed to her that this little cousin of hers was going to be the mother of the Messiah, she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mm -hmm. You're the Gebira. Yeah. That translates the great lady. Now that's interesting. What do we call the Blessed Mother often in, in Catholic culture? Our Lady. Yeah. But that's Israelite. The Great Lady is her, yeah. was her title. I just wanted to get that across that, you know, some people say, well, you guys made this stuff up. No. We're just not that good. <laughs> you know, right. we don't make stuff up. We are biblical, and it's all drawn from, yeah. from the scriptures. So, Solomon, this introduces a new chapter. Yeah. You know, we went through Saul, yep. David, the, key, the, the covenant has been made, okay? Right. And now we have Solomon. Man, does he start off good. He really does. Doesn't he? Absolutely. Wisdom. 
Tell me about his wisdom. Well, well I'm just going to say this, too. You just think, in, if you're a Jew, you think, you don't think abstract categories. You think concrete, right? So when you think the law, you think of a person, Moses. When you think of the Psalms, you think of a person, David. When you think of wisdom, you think mm -hmm. of a person, Solomon. Right. So Solomon is renowned for wisdom. What I love is, I love the prayer of Solomon, which I read it in the Liturgy of the Hours. I pray it at least once every four weeks as it occurs. But Solomon's given the choice of a lot of things he could have. And what he asks for is wisdom. Mm -hmm. So he's wise enough to ask for wisdom and not for riches and other things. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, later on, you know, he gets a little messed up and the riches and, and the wives become too important and turn his heart. But at the beginning, he understands the most important thing is wisdom because I don't know how to govern these people. I need your wisdom, Lord. So he asks for wisdom and therefore he's given it. And he becomes a, a sage that's renowned not only in Israel, but all throughout the, the Middle Eastern world. And so people come, like the Queen, Queen of Sheba, Sheba yeah. to, find, to, to learn from him. And I just want to point out something as we read the book of Proverbs and we read other books that are associated with him, like, uh, you know, the wisdom of Solomon, okay? Mm -hmm. That his wisdom is not just the theological wisdom that we would say is doctrine. It's wisdom on personal relationships. Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom, Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom about everyday life. Yeah. It's wisdom about plants. He loves, like for him, God, and this is the Catholic tradition today and all throughout history, God has created everything. And so animals, plants, um, science, this is not alien to the concerns of, of a believer, of a follower of God. No, these things are manifestations of his wisdom, and mm -hmm. therefore it is wise to seek to understand them. So Solomon understands things about animals and about nature. And so all this is part of the legacy of wisdom of Solomon in the Bible, and all this is part of the legacy, really, of Catholic mm -hmm. wisdom. Yeah. And, you know, we have, we have teachers like Hildegard of Bingen, you know, a Catholic saint, and she has volumes on theology and mystical visions, but volumes also on medicine of her day, of, mm -hmm. of insight into herbs and science. She's the first one to uh, advise people to put hops in beer as a preservative. So, you know, the world has Hildegard of, of Bingen to thanks because she, like Solomon, cared about these wonderful things of God's creation. You realize you just started a new devotion. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Back to Solomon from now. I'm sure. But, but you know, no, it's true. You know, when you look at Proverbs, for example, and I, uh, I used to do this more. I, I probably should do it again. Yeah. And uh, I did a series on wisdom for for Ascension. And one of the points I brought out is that in the Book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters. You can read one chapter a day for a month, 31 days in the month, Beautiful. and you will be, you'll be nurtured with wisdom. And, and we need wisdom. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Absolutely. Big difference. You, knowledge, you can gather all the facts and figures you, that you want. Putting it into practice, that takes wisdom. Yep. And Solomon gives us wisdom, and we need that so much. We really do. But... He, as known as the wisest man in the world, is not immune from making bad decisions. That's what blows me away. Absolutely. That's what scares me, frankly. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I, can I tell you what I, I used to teach Bible, sixth grade, Old Testament. And the kids were awesome and they were very astute. But I kind of collected some of the bloopers, you know, the crazy answers that I got in quizzes. Mm -hmm. So one kid says, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> That's supposed to be concubines. I think everyone gets that. But, yeah. but anyway, the point is a thousand women. <laughs> and that, that is not a wise move, Solomon. No. And and a lot of those women were, were foreigners they were. who brought their gods and their values and saw, turned his heart to worshiping. He didn't totally say no to Yahweh, but no, and now he's going to play... He's going to kind of fudge it and, and you know, play all the angles, mm -hmm. and he's going to worship with his wives, the, the pagan gods, and worship the God of Israel. No, God doesn't, God doesn't have rivals, no. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, and, and it really does bring down the, the, the royal dynasty to the point where you have David, Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. That already is the point where the northern ten tribes are going to say, had it. We've had it. Right. This isn't working. Right. This is not good for us. Right. 
that to me is, is, is so interesting. I want to go back one moment for just a moment here. David was a good king. I mean, he was a good king. He, he was a good king. Solomon started off being a good king. He didn't end up being so good there, but he was king. I've heard people say before, you know, I know you're Catholic and you have, uh, you have the papacy, but I've heard that there were some bad popes. Now, is, is that a reason why we shouldn't have a pope? Because there were a handful of bad ones any more than if David or Solomon entered a streak of wasn't so good. Should we just ex nay on the king's eighth? Right, right, right. And you have a background. You studied the, the yep. whole history of the of the papacy. Yep. Can you educate us a little bit about the history of the papacy in light of kings and good and bad kings? Well, it's important to take a look at, the, if you read the rest of the book of Kings and Chronicles, you find out there's a lot. There's not too many kings that you can really get excited about. <laughs> I would say True. over the history of the papacy, there's a lot more saints among the, the popes than there are saints among the kings of Israel, for sure. But the point is that God works his purposes even through leaders that are very imperfect, mm -hmm. as he did through Saul, mm -hmm. David, and Solomon, just these, these three, we see all their imperfections, we see their virtues, but the Spirit of the Lord was on them and they were anointed by God. And it, the Lord wanted his people united. When Rehoboam, what he does is, he's a hothead and he has hothead advisors. And his father had already oppressed people to the point, the breaking point. And people, some people said, hey, you're gonna ease up on the people. And he said, no, I'm gonna double down. They're complaining, I'm just gonna double down. And so he does that and he drives the north to rebellion. Now, he's at fault, but the one who leads the rebellion in the north, Jeroboam, he is at fault and he's cursed. And I think this is important, you know, in the division of God's people that still exists today, that goes back to the time of the schism with the Orthodox, and then after that, the Protestant Reformation. People, this is what it says in Vatican II, people on both sides are to blame. And what we really need to do is work and pray for unity in God's people, because that's a passion of God's heart. It always has been, but we especially see it in the Last Supper discourse in the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus in John 17. If this is something that is so dear to Jesus' heart that it's the last thing he talks about and prays mm. for, it ought to be a passion on our part. Mm -hmm. I, uh, as we come to as we come to the end of this of this period, I'm reminded of the the books that that are written that that fit in the context of First and Second Samuel and First Kings one through eleven for this royal kingdom period, and I think about the Psalms. Yeah. And uh, that, that can be read, the Psalms can yep. be read in the context of David because many of the Psalms are attributed uh, to, to David. Yeah. How do the Psalms that rise up during this period of the royal kingdom, how do they feed us as a church? Well, it's, the Psalms are the most important book in the Old Testament for us because the whole Old Testament mm -hmm. is reflected in the Psalms and they're the prayer of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the apostles. Mm -hmm. These are the, the prayers that they prayed. The very words. Yeah. And so uh, the church continued the, the tradition of praying the Psalms all throughout the day. And that's now what we call the liturgy of the hours. But the Psalms, are, they, they lead us to prayer and they express every single emotion from David's dejection and crying out for mercy to his exaltation. He was a great praiser. So you think of him singing before the Ark of the Covenant and, and mm -hmm. we, assume, we would assume that some of the things he sang ended up with some of those great Psalms of praise. You know? but, but, but the point is we need to make these, this is, these are the prayers of the church. This prayer book of the Jerusalem temple begun by David is still the prayer book of the church. The most most important prayer book. And I, I'd encourage everybody, whether you pray the Liturgy of the Hours or not, to make the Psalms part of your daily prayer. Mm -hmm. And understand that they're prophetic. The most important, well, many of the most important prophetic scriptures are 
really in the Psalms. Jesus' last words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the title of Psalm 22, yeah. for example. So, so, mu so much of the Psalms predict the Lord's passion and resurrection. Psalm 118 is the great resurrection song, you know, yeah. uh, that, that we, we pray on Sunday and Easter. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good I like what one, one great teacher said one time. Uh, he was talking about the Psalms, and he said that the Psalms are the school of prayer because yes. not only... Not only if you pray the Psalms, if you pray the Psalms, like Psalm 23, the most famous probably, you pray the Psalms, you are praying to God, but at the same time, the Psalms are teaching you how to pray. Exactly. They're teaching you. So it's a school. And you're, I think the early church fathers even, someone, I don't remember the name, but somebody made that comment that, that it is the school of prayer. If you, if you don't know how to pray, then immerse yourself in yeah. Psalms, you'll learn. You will. You'll learn how to pray. Absolutely. St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry is a Catholic graduate school reuniting theology, prayer, and sanctity. They want to provide you with ongoing formation of mind and heart and are offering the opportunity to join their online spring 2024 class, Mary, Mother of God for only $35. This course will serve as an introduction to Mary, the Mother of God and Mother of the Church. It will explore Mary's historical and theological significance from a Catholic perspective, providing an overview of her role in Scripture, doctrine, and devotion. You'll also learn where Mary is involved in dogmas of the Catholic Church and how she's been portrayed in beautiful works of art over the centuries. The deadline to apply is January 5th, 2024. Further details can be found on St. Bernard's website at www.stbernards.edu forward slash Mary course. All right, it's come, come to the time where we need to find out, does Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio really read the Bible a lot. What's his relationship <laughs> with the Bible? We ask every one of our guests to yeah. give us a little insight into your uh, your life uh, in the Bible. And I've got a couple of my Bibles here. And, and uh, I'll, I'll show you what I do. I mark my Bible all the time. I've got, I've got highlighters. I've got I've got pens that don't bleed through. I've always been one that liked to mark my Bible. And I, I know that other people enjoy that as well. So I'm going to show just one page in, I'll use Matthew 3 and 4 and 5, and then you can show us a place in your Bible and uh, and how you might mark it, and then we'll talk about our life with Scripture, because I know you are deep into the Word of God and you always have been. And uh, so here is, uh, there you go. Look at that. Well, multicolor. That's great. I was multicolor, yeah, yeah I but I use it to teach. I look okay. at the Beatitudes and I can see... Uh, I can see uh, the blue. I can see, you know, I, I just, I just like that. So, oh, look at that. Do you okay? Now you've got right, some. Is, I was hold it up here. I want them to okay, see this. this. Is what I, I was just re reading this page today. So now, you don't uh, normally do this? I do, but okay. I, this is before I came here on the plane. I, I was preparing for uh, a talk, and I was reading some some texts that I felt the Lord was leading me to to, to share in the talk. So Bible. There you go. It was, yeah, yeah. So and anyway, you, you write in your Bible too. I write in my Bible. This is just this is an insight. Now a lot of times I use an insight journal. You guys, you have an insight. We journal. have an insight journal at Ascension. Yeah. So I, 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 a lot of times I write insights in here. And today I'm on a plane and I didn't didn't want to pull that out. I wanted to write it right in the margin. So I just wrote an insight that the Spirit gave me, and a cross reference. Um, you know, I wanted to. Um, make clear, you know, this text goes back to this text in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So it, it, sometimes the references are given to you right down the bottom here. But there was one that I, a connection I saw that I wanted. To and you have older Bibles at home, too, that you've done the same? I have Bibles that are falling apart, you know? And yeah. So with the American too. flag, you don't just toss them in the trash. I, I'm going to try to bring one on the next show and one of my oldest ones, and I'll show you some uh, parts of, of that one. Okay, so let's briefly talk about your life in the Bible. Okay. Is it something you do every day? Is it something that you are, how, how often do you read okay. the Bible? How do you read the Bible? Okay, first of all, the liturgy of the Catholic Church is the greatest of all Bible studies. And so I, I do the liturgy of the hours and I pray what's called the office of readings with my wife, Susan, anytime I'm home. And when I'm not home, I do it alone. Mm -hmm. But uh, the two, we'll, we'll pray that together. And there's a, a long Psalm 
And then there's a biblical reading, like a page. And then there's a commentary mainly from the fathers of the church, but sometimes from a saint. And today is, uh, you know, that, that we're recording is a particular saint's day, so there was a beautiful reading from that particular saint. All right, and then there's morning prayer, which are psalms of praise. In the evening, there's a 10-minute evening prayer, and there's songs of reflection, uh, especially song, psalms of trust, which are really appropriate after you've worn yourself out fighting the battle of the day. You know, you need to be consoled that God is really in control, you know, and then night prayer before we go to bed. So anyway, we, that, that feeds me with scripture all throughout the day. And, um, and that's uh, Litany of the Hours. That's lit Liturgy of the Hours. Or Liturgy right? of the Hours, I mean. Right, that, right. That can, so, is that so, a multi-volume? Yeah, it, you know what, there's an app there's a number of apps. One is iBrevery. So you can download this free from either Android, Play, Google Play Store, or uh, you know the Apple Store. And it also there's another one called Laudate. And there's another one called Divine Office. Okay, but any of those will give you on a day-by-day -day basis where you don't need to buy books, you know, uh, you don't have to flip ribbons. They'll put everything together for you for that day. So it's very simple. And I'm traveling on the, the plane. I can do it on the plane, do it anywhere. Of course, I have the books at home. But when I'm traveling, I use my phone and one of these apps. But with, with my Bible, uh, there's nothing that replaces, you know, just reading the text. And one of the ways that I pray, honestly, Lexio Divina, is a, a lot of times there'll be a particular little line in the Sunday readings. Lexio Divina. Yes. You stop right there. Okay. What does that mean? What is it? it means reading a small portion of, of Scripture that you feel drawn to by the Holy Spirit and really munching on it, okay. gnawing on it, like mulling it over, really meditating on it, praying off of it, using it as a springboard to pray mm -hmm. from. Okay, so it's really digesting. Like for our farmers, that's cow chewing. Oh, cow, a chow, uh, yeah, a cow chews its cud over mm -hmm. and over, yeah, okay. So instead of just gulping down scripture, <laughs> you're, you're just ruminating on it, which means chewing it over to get the last bit of juice out of it that you can. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can never exhaust the juice that's in scripture, unlike grass, you know, of a cow. But anyway, I find that doing, having a small portion of scripture daily that I really mull over and that often that I'll write on and underline on and then journal on. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will give you, you, you read something and you've read it a million times, but he's showing you a new insight. Yeah, every day. Um, and, and he's he, he's showing you how you need to apply it in your life in a new way. Yeah. And that's the, where the rubber meets the road is living scripture. So I'll often, you know, write down the day in my, in my journal and write an entry of, write the scripture down, like the reference, and then write what I feel the Lord is saying yeah. to me. I think it's really important to keep a journal like this because uh, a lot of times you get a great insight and, and two days later, you've totally forgotten it. Gone with the wind. And sometimes you make a resolution based on that insight and you've forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a week, two weeks later, you take a prayer time and sometimes I'll take a prayer time like this, sometimes in my bedroom, sometimes in front of the Blessed Sacrament, sometimes out in the garden. But I'll take my journal, I'll take my highlighter and I'll go through what I've written for the past mm -hmm. you know, few entries and I'll, I'll say, oh, wow. I need to highlight that, what I wrote there, and I'm not doing that. And the yeah. Lord said to do it. I forgot all about that. I need to do it. Uh, and I do that after going to confession as well. Sometimes I get insights from the priest in council that I need to write down because I think it's the Lord. I get, I get them in the middle of Mass. Yeah. There in the go. middle of Mass. But, yeah. but, but you mentioned the Insight Journal. Check it out. Ascension Press does have an uh, Insight Journal. Father Mike and I, uh, Schmitz and I, put that together to do just that, to write down the insights that you get so that you can keep them forever. And I even have an insight journal for uh, all three of my grandchildren, and I'm keeping notes for them, you know, and little bits of wisdom. So when they turn 18, I'll hand it to them and say, I've been praying for you all this time. Favorite verse, you have one? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We That's liked good. it so much, we made it, we, we, we did. you and I made, made a series on that. We did, I enjoyed that very yeah, much. Yeah. I did, I enjoyed it. Uh, okay, so now a final question. Of all the characters in the Bible, of all the characters in the Bible, who do you identify with the most? Besides wow. Jesus, you can't have that. Okay, I know wow. that that's true, wow. and I see it all over you, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna say the beloved disciple. I, when I was um, 
looking for a confirmation name. My middle name is already John, but I take that to be John the Baptist. And so I took the confirmation name John. So I'm, you know, I'm Marcelino John John D'Ambrosio. John John. Uh, Giovanni Giovanni, yeah. So so John the, the, the evangelist, he, he rested on the Lord's breast. He was mm -hmm. that intimate with the Lord. He loved him and he stood at the foot of the cross. And his message, even when he was an old man, was gentle and it was encouraging. He called Christians to love one another. So I, I feel like I have a call to be like him mm -hmm. and, and a call to, to have that intimacy with Jesus and to teach um, with gentleness. And, sure. You know, and, and focus on the love of the Lord. So we do have uh, a number of questions that you have given us, and I appreciate your involvement uh, with the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. They're going to stump you. That's what they're trying to do. They're going right. to try to stump you. And so I've got some of the questions here. Joe. Joe writes in and says, um, could you please explain a little, a little more about why the Israelites wanted a king? Also, before God gave them a king, who led them? Or was there no leadership? I'm also confused why God would give them a king, even if it wasn't necessarily good for them. Well, I mean, bottom line, you got the Philistines, and they are really doing a number on you. And so you look around, and you see mighty kings with chariots who are mm -hmm. defending their people, and you say, I, I want one of those. And, and I think it's also, we talked about this a little earlier, there's like, I want to be like that, my neighbor. I want to have what they have. Yeah. And that's part of the deal here. And, and I think there's a lack of faith. God raised up judges who always dealt with their enemies. They, they were raised up, and then when the, the threat was gone, they, were like, they, they just kind of blended back into the woodwork. They, they didn't assume this you know, palace and you know, retinue and permanent kingship. And, um, but they didn't trust that. You know, they didn't trust God to do that, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's kind of sad. So I think the, these are the reasons. Why did God give it to them? Well, we, we know the end of the story. They didn't. Mm -hmm. And he's going to raise up a righteous King Jesus. And so he's giving them really a rough draft, and he's giving them hints as to who to expect to come as the son of David, the true king uh, who will bring peace, the prince of peace. You wonder if there's almost a fascination, a fascination with royalty that's built into us in some way. Yeah. Call it your spiritual DNA. Uh, we are fascinated by the royals in England, you know, in Great Britain. We're fascinated by kings and queens and princes and princesses. And, and when Israel asks for a king, that is the, the, the normal leadership in a country back then where every country has a, has a king. But in some ways, I think it, it's a crying back to the beginning of God really being in control. You know, they want that, and God wants that. Yeah. And so the, the kings of Israel are really supposed to reflect how God would rule right. and reign. And like we talked about earlier, sometimes, yeah, sometimes not so bad, not so good. But, but David is supposed to reflect the way God would treat the orphans, the widow, yeah. justice, and, and, and so forth. And we find it ultimately in Jesus. Amen. Ultimately in Jesus. All right, we got another question. This is Greg. I don't really understand the title son of David. Why is it so important that Jesus was a descendant of David? Yeah. Well, the prophecies that all predicted a son of David mm -hmm. who would be truly Emmanuel, for example, um, God with us. You know, a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. At the exile, there's a, a clean cut. Mm -hmm. The Davidic dynasty is gone. Okay, so we have Jesus that is promised a, 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 this shoot, and we see him as the son of David. So it's important because the promises had all kind of led up to this, and so the promises had to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what, what I think is fascinating is that Jesus enters into our sinful humanity. He's not the sinner, but he is not afraid to be part of a line that is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a people that's imperfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, David has his flaws. Well, Jesus is a descendant of this flawed guy, you know, and um, he's a descendant of, 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 of that whole line and Solomon as well. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of amazing. Um, so God, the Lord Jesus redeems that line and redeems David and Solomon and that whole line, as well as redeeming all of us, which is kind of cool. In that, in that genealogy, I love the way Matthew does that. It's uh, 
uh, he, he uses the genealogy to get his point across clearly, and that is that from Abraham to David, you have 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Right. And from the deportation of Babylon to Jesus. And, and you have, you have uh, Matthew basically telling us that, that there have been six sets of seven. And Jesus now is the seventh, seventh, the new beginning, the fulfillment that beautiful? of yeah. all that has gone before us. And David and Abraham are really, really pillars in that genealogy. Absolutely. I love that. That's really good. Okay, so uh, Annie writes, question number three. Annie says, what's going on in, with the Song of Songs? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Annie. Why don't you read it? <laughs> what is going on with the Song of Songs? Did King Solomon write it? It isn't very clear, but I know there's much to learn. I think I'll give the old Song of Songs to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Jeff. <laughs> <clears throat> Jeff, it, it's, the Song of Songs is a mysterious book, and Jewish rabbis looked at it as a mystical and, mm -hmm. and, you know, a book. And, and some modern scholars say, ah, it's just a bunch of love poetry. But it's very, very clear. It wouldn't be in the canon. It wouldn't be sacred scripture if it weren't reflecting God's passionate love affair with his people. That's yeah. what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so you have throughout the history of Christianity, magnificent treatises on the Song of Songs uh, by St. Bernard of Clairvaux and other people, because this is all about how passionate God is. And I think this is important. Most of us don't really think God's that crazy about us. I was just gonna say that that's not the way most people would <laughs> judge, you know. Yeah, he's crazy about us, right. and he pursues us. And we're called to pursue him. And this is one of the beautiful things about Mary Magdalene, you know. Mary Magdalene pursued him who her heart loves. On Easter morning, she goes to the tomb. She's searching for the one whom her heart loves. We need to be searching for Jesus. And, and, and this goes for guys as well as, as, as women. You know, it's like we are members of the bride, which is the church. So we all have a spousal relationship to Christ in yeah. a certain way. And so we need to pursue intimacy with him, not just belief in him, not just obeying his commandments, but intimate union with him and knowledge of him. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what the Song of Songs really ultimately is about in the canon. Whether This is one of the important things we all need to know, you know. Sometimes books are attributed or linked to certain figures. Like all the Psalms are linked to David. David didn't write all the Psalms. All the Spirit certainly inspired different people, including David. But he's linked to the songs, the Psalms, and Solomon is linked to the Song of Songs. So whether he actually wrote all this is not the important thing. The Holy Spirit inspired all this, and Solomon is, is um, you know, in a certain way. Right, and I would figure. say, Annie, you know, when you read that, you know, be aware that the, the originally it's like an allegory between talking about God's love for His people Israel, but even more to the point, Jesus' love for you. Jesus' Amen. love, Jesus' love for you, and how close He is uh, to you. And you mentioned uh, Saint Mary Magdalene, and on her feast day, if I'm not mistaken, the first reading is from a song of yeah, song is that cool? It's a song of, yeah, it's that is the, so great. It's from there, and it's I'm searching for my beloved. And, is that beautiful? Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. All right, Sarah has a question: Why was Solomon chosen among all sons to be the king's successor? What made him better than the others? Did God point him out via Samuel? It seems that Bathsheba was key in his choosing and intercession. And you kind of commented on this uh, a, li a little bit earlier. But did God uh, pick uh, Solomon because just he looked at them all and said, you're the best? Well, let's say this. Do we really understand why God chooses anybody? Mm -hmm. I mean, really, when it comes right, why did God choose the Jews? There was a poem that said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. You know that? Yeah. yeah but it, it, it really is a mystery. And God tends to choose those who are least likely to succeed, like the apostles, for example. I mean, yeah. if you're going to go out and start a, a multinational corporation, a worldwide organization, would you choose those guys? I mean, I don't think I would have. And would you choose Jeff Cavins and Marcelino D'Ambrosio? <laughs> I don't think so. I wouldn't. It is a mystery, isn't it? You yeah. know that when Jesus said to the, uh, the 12, uh, come follow me. Uh, he made a statement after that, which is very heartwarming. He said, listen, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Right. I chose you. And if I had been there, I'm, I most likely would have said, come again. 
<laughs> what? Why? What did you see? Yeah. What did you see? I saw a son. I saw someone yeah. who can become like me. You know, I, I just want to say this too. When God sees the heart and our loving father sees good in us that we don't see, and he loves that good, and he put that good in there. And, and that's true for every single person on the planet. Yeah. There's a special good that he put in Solomon mm -hmm. and that the world didn't see, just like he put into David. And, and even yeah. Samuel didn't see it. He's a prophet. So, you know, that's the way I think it's important for us to know that God looks with us, looks at us with love. Yeah. And there's something special about each one of us we need to understand. That's that that's the way he wants to train us to start to see that in others. And it's gonna make us a, good point. a lot more like him. If yeah, yeah, good that. point. A book yeah. is not judged by its cover. Here's a final question right. from Mr. Anonymous. He or she writes, I've heard God allows us to experience natural consequences of our sin. Can you speak to this in light of God killing David's son? That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? God yeah. killing David's son. As a consequence for sleeping with Bathsheba, do we no longer live in fear of these types of consequences because of what Jesus did for us? You know, it yeah. almost sounds like a kind of a neo-Martianism, you know, of there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God, which by the way is a heresy. <laughs> uh, advocating it, that's a heresy. But uh, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And I think that's a good, that's a good question. Are there consequences to sin? And yeah, yeah. number one, number two, did God kill David's son? Number two. And number number three, do we do have we lost this fear of consequences? Yeah. Let me say that um, I think it's really important to understand a term in the Old Testament that's kind of scary, and that is the wrath of God. How do we best understand the wrath of God? And I think really the best way to understand the wrath of God is God allowing us to experience the full effects of our own foolishness and stupidity and sin. Yeah. And he does that honestly out of mercy because it, it, it's meant to wake us up and it's meant to, to, to be an example so that we, we don't fall into worse mm -hmm. self-destruction. Because that's what sin really is. Self, sin is so destructive, it, and it wounds us more than... It, if we commit it, it wounds yeah. us the worst, even yeah. though we hurt a lot of other John people. John Paul II said it's spiritual suicide. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, the point I, I just want to make here is that um, the death of the son of David and Bathsheba is a consequence, certainly, of David's sin. But it's not like God killed the child. God allowed the child to die. Now, mm -hmm. we happen to know that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to, to any of us. And so we, we would hope when, when a child dies, um, even an unbaptized child, that through the mercy of God, somehow they're in God's presence in God's hands. But for David, you know, a, a child is a possession. It's, it's, it's one of the greatest gifts Unfortunately, we don't think this way enough today. But in those days, a son is an arrow in your quiver, and it's a gift. Um, and so, you know, this is not punishment to the child. You know, th this is a consequence of David's sin. It's punishment to David. You know, for David. Now, I just say, for us, all of us need to understand there are consequences to sin in terms of the, the natural effects, destructive effects of sin in our lives. Yeah. And it's easy to see with something like alcoholism, you know, or, or drunkenness. Let me say, just when you when you. Drunkenness can lead to horrible things for us, physical illness and the disease. Mm -hmm. It can lead to horrible acts that we never would have committed when we were sober, that we hurt other people, you know? Right. And, and so um, this is, the temporal punishment due to sin means this in the Catholic tradition now. Jesus forgives the guilt of sin, but there, so we have to take responsibility to try to make right to some degree what we set wrong by our sin. So there's a need for prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, for us to try to rebuild the good in us and it, it, to the, the best we can to give restitution to others that we've stolen from. And we steal every time we, we sin, right? Mm -hmm. So here's my point. It's not like now saying yes to Jesus, uh, please forgive me, all consequences are wiped out, all right? Yeah. So we need to do penance, and that's part of a difference in maybe understanding between some, some Christians. But for Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians, mm -hmm. we need to do penance. And we, we yeah. don't escape all the consequences temporally in this life of the stupid things that we do in sin. Yeah, and penance is really, it's a rebuilding. It's it, a rebuilding of the good. It's, it's, yeah. like, it's like, you know, spiritual therapy. It's yeah. like physical therapy. You know, it hurts sometimes, but it's for our good. So prayer, fasting, almsgiving, spiritual exercise, it's kind of like therapy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow, that's good. The Royal Kingdom, the Purple Period, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings 1 through 11. Let's pray, shall we? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for revealing your heart and your plan in sacred scripture. We thank you, Lord, for fulfilling all righteousness and you indeed are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is nothing in you that disappoints. You completely satisfy the soul, you nourish us, and there is no one like you. We, Lord, we, we lay our lives down before you and we submit to you as our King and our Lord and our husband, physician, best friend. And we ask you to continue to lead us in our lives and to provide us with wisdom and pastoral care. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Thank you, appreciate it very much. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.